Welcome to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. This episode is part five of our recaps going through chapter two of Wolfe's 1975 novel, Peace. We're covering pages 102 to 111 in the 2012 Orb edition. We've got one last show that we want to tell you about before we get to work today, and this is our Star Trek show. It's called Lower Decks. This is a show that I do with my longtime friend, Valerie Hoagland. We pretty much randomly cover episodes of the five classic Star Trek shows. They're really chosen by our listeners. We have also, though, been checking in on the new Star Trek shows. We've uh, done the first two seasons of Discovery in great detail, sort of episode by episode. We also just did a single episode on the first season of the new Captain Picard show, which was fairly contentious among the Star Trek fandom. And so it was a lot of fun for us to, to talk about and in addition to all of the, the Star Trek, we do also try to slip in some Trek-adjacent shows like the original Twilight Zone. Also looks like we're going to be doing an episode of the uh, great, super awesome 1990s SF show Sliders coming up. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Lower Decks just is it's a fun show, really lets us stretch our legs because we just get to talk about almost every concept in speculative fiction because, you know, that's what Star Trek does. And uh, really, we, we hope you'll check it out. Yeah, it's definitely worth checking out. I mean, I am nowhere near as deep into the whole kind of Star Trek uh, oeuvre as you and Valerie are. I'm slowly making my way through Voyager and uh, uh, still have one season left of TNG. But anytime an episode comes up that you guys have covered, I get, I get really excited. I mean, it, Valerie's also just a blast to record with. She and I have done some episodes of uh, Gilmore Girls and the X-Files and uh, her insights really bring a lot to, you know, storytelling and the television medium in particular. So I really think, you know, especially listeners who are fans of Star Trek, they should check out Lower Decks if they haven't. And someday we'll do a full episode review of the uh, the Star Trek story that is more or less a, uh, a blatant appropriation of Gene Wolfe's short story, Alien Stones. And that's uh, Star Trek, the motion picture. Yeah, I love to listen to that one. Well, where we left off in peace, since, uh, I don't know, that's why you and I are here, Glenn. <laughs> we, uh, you know, we left off with uh, Aunt Olivia and Eleanor Bold discussing this affair of the egg where, you know, there's competition between Olivia and her one of her suitors, Jimmy McAfee. And she talks about having to go to the bank to withdraw some money. And this leads us really right into our next section. Right. So, yeah, we've been introduced to Professor Peacock. We've been introduced to James McAfee. Right. So these are the first two of Olivia's three suitors. We we very clearly only got half of the, the, the James McAfee story, though, right? Half of the affair of the Chinese egg, as it is called. And we're not going to continue that in this section because Weir interrupts that account to tell us about the third suitor, right? We knew he was coming here. And this uh, third suitor is Stuart Blaine. We've heard the name before, in fact, from Professor Peacock. And Stuart Blaine owns the Cashinsville and Canacasee Valley State Bank, which he inherited from his father, very much the way James McAfee inherited the department store from his. And in fact, we're probably going to want to talk about inherited wealth in this book at some point, probably when we get to our, our final wrap-up episode, because it's actually all over all of these families, at least at this point. But at any rate, Blaine is wealthy, and really like ostentatiously so. 
He drives a British luxury car. His house is a mansion. It's got a columned portico instead of a, a you know old-fashioned American porch. Though we also get a note here from Weir that although Blaine's house was definitely a, a serious business mansion, the house that Weir is living in now is actually much larger. Also, he tells us that he recreated Blaine's foyer in this house when he designed it because it made such an impression on him when he was a, a child, presumably meaning you know this summer when he's living with Olivia. But still, wealth is what Blaine has, and wealth is also really what he is. It's his dominant character attribute, as it is for all rich people. This is an insight of Weir's, right? So this is according to Weir, at least. So what's going on here is that Olivia and Weir are going over to Blaine's house for dinner. And this is a bit scandalous for the time. It's probably only really possible because Olivia's bringing Weir with her. Blaine has gone and, and picked them up at Olivia's house. He's, he's picked them up in his fancy car. And when they arrive back at his place, his mansion, the bank manager is there waiting for them. It turns out that Blaine had asked the, the bank manager to, to come by to go over some figures, but he had meant earlier than the time it is now. And so now at this point, right, there's a whole thing going on here about whether Blaine should, you know, meet with the bank manager and therefore have to keep Olivia and we're waiting or, you know, whether the bank manager should just stay for dinner. And it's really a whole complicated thing. And Blaine here, I mean, really part of the complication is that Blaine here is very concerned about propriety, but then he does not at all actually listen to what any of the other people here have to say about how they'd like to handle this situation. And it seems that Blaine ends up making a decision that doesn't actually satisfy anyone, uh, including himself. Yeah, I'll talk about that in a moment. What I really want to focus on here is how this section of text ends. And that is with Weir saying, in relation to him building this foyer as a recreation of Blaine's foyer, he says this, uh, why should not my memory, which still exists, which still lives and breathes and has its being, be less actual, less real than a physical entity now demolished and irrecoverable? Now, this physical entity we think of in the context here is Blaine's house. Uh, we've been talking about whether or not Weir is alive. It could be Weir's body in a weird sense. But let's just take it for now that it's Blaine's house, his foyer in particular. And, you know, the sentence before this, what I just read, Weir tells us that, as I've said, he recreated Blaine's foyer in his own mansion, not just in the, quote, tape measure sense, but in its actuality, which is to say, as Weir remembered it. And to me, this is a very curious phrase. It's certainly an inversion of what we understand something to really be, you know, what is a thing it's, you know, if it's at least reproducible, if it's empirical, has empirical being, you know, something that can be rebuilt like an architectural plan, we'd expect it to be that. But we're saying the actual thing is how I remember it, which is we've seen as a motif of this novel. And, and, and so Weir is really committing deeply to a sort of subjectivism. What things really are is not something we can go back to and measure, uh, but it's something that we can recreate instead based on a combination of our imagination, which is to say that the images in our mind and the way they're colored by our memories. And this is a very strange sort of sentiment, but I, I think it's really important to Weir's sense of the world or how he's encountering the world now. 
And it's not just that he's recreating what's in his memory. I mean, I mean, that is definitely what he's doing. I think what's really important here, or, or, you know, an element that is really important here is that it's his memory, you know, as a child. And so, you know, when he's saying it was not, you know, it was not a replica to the tape measure, right? I think what he means, right, is that he's capturing the the way that it felt larger than life to him, right? So in terms of like the scale, it has to be bigger than it actually was for him to, as an adult, stand in it and have the feeling that he had when he was standing in it when he was nine. That's that's an age thing there, you know, even just maybe a function of like height, you know, as well, right? In terms <laughs> of like thinking about his perspective, right? But I do also think it's not just that. I think it is also a money thing. I've been making a point of of emphasizing the fact that the Weir family has wealth and wealth that uh, Weir's father inherited and Olivia perhaps in in some sense as well. And perhaps also Weir himself when he is older, when his parents uh, pass away. But it is quite clear that Weir himself now uh, has, well, perhaps not now actually, but at some point in his life around age 50, Weir had more money than his family ever had before, and perhaps more money than than the owner of the local bank even had at this point in the 1920s. So what really what I'm getting at here, though, is that although Weir's family at this point in the 1920s has some money, the amount of wealth that they have is nowhere near the amount of wealth that Stuart Blaine has. And so even within you know the class of wealthy people, I think there's a, there's some distance here. So not just the lens of age, it's also the lens of having less wealth than the banker family does, through which he was seeing this foyer, you know, experiencing it the first time that I guess he has tried to recreate in this room as an adult, which to me sounds like he's probably created a real monstrosity. Yeah, this mansion is more and more feeling like a, a genuinely impossible place, more like, I don't know, something like Giordano Bruno's concept of a memory palace, more than like <laughs> anything that's real, uh, though, though that's something. I think we'll have to keep our eye on as we continue to read and get a sense of the layout of this mansion, if that's ever even possible, of Weir's mansion, I mean. I, I also just want to say that I feel really bad for Mr. Rice Pie here. He's a high-level functionary at the bank. He got a request from his boss, the bank owner, and you can tell from his understanding of what, you know, getting a request from the boss means uh, you know, it, it essentially means like, get me whatever I asked for immediately or there will be trouble. And so he's forced to keep other employees late, Rice Pie is, to help him get these papers together, which means that perhaps Stuart Blaine has no idea of how long something actually takes or what he's asking when he asks for something. And then Rice Pie is confronted with the problem that his boss is having dinner with someone else and he can't politely leave. And maybe this is part of his boss's plan altogether. And I mean, this is just a, a classic problem with a boss who appears to manage based on their compulsions rather than on a real understanding <laughs> of what anyone else's time means and how schedules really work. And at this point, I just really want Rice Pie to go home and eat dinner with his wife and then complain about how crappy a boss Blaine is. Oh, yeah. Well, Stuart Blaine is clearly a pretty terrible boss. And look, I'm just going to lay my cards out on the table here and say um, he's the suitor I'm definitely not rooting for as well. I just don't think I like Stuart Blaine very much. And we're seeing some of that already in this scene, but we're going to get more of that as we go. I want to talk about the name of the bank manager here, Brandon. I was going to go out of my way to never say it, but since you have said it three times, not only have you actually summoned him, uh, I feel like we need to talk about it. Uh, I think the name is actually recipe or recipe 
And the reason I, I think that is because there's a pun about the name here about uh, having recipe for dinner is something that uh, Stuart Blaine says and like literally means that. And then people laugh because it sounds like having the recipe for dinner. Um, that's not actually explained, but that's the pun. That's the joke. I was going to not put that in here because I like to make puns and I can't compete with Wolf. So I just like to keep Wolf's puns out of the show if I can if I can do it. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to do. I mean, I just thought it was a joke about having rice pie for dinner, which is maybe another kind of Easter <laughs> traditional dish. So I I had no idea. So uh yeah, it could be recipe or it could be rice pie. <laughs> Well, I think I think this is the argument that's going to break the show apart. <laughs> but, uh, please come to the forum. Tell us if you're on Team Rice Pie or, or Team Recipe, I suppose. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to do a lot of jumping around now in this part of the, the story. And the, the next section starts with an interlude back in the world of the, the present where, you know, Weir is actually writing down this account. And he tells us that remembering Blaine's foyer has made him want to go find his replica of it and also his knife, which he still has not gone looking for. Now that we're over 100 pages into this book and he still has not gone <laughs> looking for the knife that he told us about, you know, on like page two of the, of the story. And he actually now has done it. He did go looking for the knife or really, you know, went looking for the, the foyer, but he made the mistake of not going around the outside of the house like he said he was going to do earlier. And the reason he did that was because it was raining. It wasn't a particularly hard rain. It was just a springtime sprinkle. And so it wasn't that he was concerned about getting wet. What bothered him is that with the ground wet, there was a chance that he would look back and then he would see his tracks. And that would mean that he would realize just how crippled, how lamed his leg is. And that is something that he just couldn't bear. He just did not want to see this visible evidence of the stroke that he's had. And so he had to look around through the inside of the house. And in the end, he could not find the foyer or, you know, his knife. But he did stumble upon a, a Persian room with divans and, and carpets and scimitars and silk embroideries. But Weir is certain that he never, ever told the designer of his house that he wanted a room like this. Yet, here it is. And he's upset about this. He tells us that if the designer were still alive, he would be in a rage about this. But since the designer is dead, he, he does understand that such a rage will not actually accomplish anything and that he may as well then enjoy this room, a room that does sound pretty cool. We also get some other details about the house here that may actually matter later. He has recreated Olivia's solarium, and in the hallway nearby, there's a, a photograph of him, of Weir, on his 50th birthday, where he's receiving a gift on behalf of the employees at his company. And this interlude here, this is not even a, a full page. It's actually not a separate section either. But I do think that we learn quite a lot about Weir here that is worth taking stock of before we get back to Blaine's. This whole section is very strange. I mean, one thing it does is to play with the notion of time uh, more so than we've seen before, especially as this is a memoir, you know, though, though the events of the past appear to flow in some sort of chronological order, Weir tells us that it may be that months have passed between when the last sentence ended and the new one began and in the life of the writer. And if we connect this notion to the search of the knife, it, it could be that Weir has been searching for his knife for a very long time and, and even deepens our sense that this knife is a real fixation 
for Weir here in his old age. And we don't know why it would be connected to Blaine's foyer, but this knife is just, it's such a object. It's almost a fetish or, or something like that, that he, he has, it's an, it's an icon of something at the very least. It hasn't even shown up actually in in quite a while, at least you know at the pace that we're reading the book anyway, <laughs> right? We've not really seen it since the, the the trip with Professor Peacock, right, where he had the knife and you know was being encouraged to uh, to murder people with the knife by his aunt and by Professor Peacock, but we've not actually seen it. But what we do get here, I, I guess, is another example of Weir's desire to lump up trips together, right? To say, I'm not going to take a trip for one thing, but if I can take a trip for two things or three things, then the effort of doing it is is worthwhile. And so really, you know, the impetus here is that he wants to go look at the foyer. And there is perhaps something there about Weir that, that we should take stock of, which is that although he has been thinking about this knife a lot as an object that he's had almost his entire life that he remembers getting and has lots of other memories of and kept with him all the time and really values, that object is not on its own worth getting up for, getting up to go look at. But what does seem to be worth getting up to go look at is this room that he's recreated, right? So it's these these places seem maybe to matter more to Weir than the objects do. Uh, with regard to these rooms, particularly this uh, Persian room, what really was most revealing to me is I think the way Weir describes his relationship to his hired help and his employees. He talks about going into a rage in order to get what he wants in some sense. And he indicates that the point of his rages, of these rages, is to make the bones shake of his underlings. And I mean, this is, you know, related to the fact that the designer, the interior decorator is dead. And so like he could stomp on the grave or whatever. But I, I think this really indicates more of a, a pattern of behavior that he has and in, in maybe a relation to his success in some sense. I hope we'll see the significance of this room as the novel continues, though I'm not sure that we will, but I, I think that this is a Persian room and we're going to see some kind of a thousand and one tales like Arabian tales coming up in a little bit. There, there might be a fascination with the, the Middle East and something like that as well, uh, on top of, you know, the way Aunt Olivia has this fascination with China. And here we have again Aunt Olivia's solarium here. And he says that the room smells of, of, of thinner and there's a palette that is drying. It's not dried. All of these things are in his room, or at least in his memory of the room. And it gives us this sense that Olivia might still be in there painting or something like that. And it's a very strange, surreal, kind of haunting image in a novel that is already full of these sorts of images. Yeah, haunting is right. This this bit of description there of the room, I, I had to read several times because just my my kind of initial pass of it was that I thought that he was saying that like Olivia is there in the house, like she's using this room, right? That's it's not what he's saying at all. But like that was just kind of as I'm reading this and letting the story wash over me, doing my sort of first first reading of the of the chapter that's a kind of relaxed, you know, for pleasure only, not thinking about the podcast reading. That was sort of where my mind went. And and I, I don't think that's accidental. I don't think it's also actually what's going on, but the phrasing of it I think is meant to suggest you know, not so much actually that Olivia is still there, but the sense that like her ghost is there or something like that, right? So like 
there's a sense that this mansion, which we've, you know, which we and also I guess we're has, you know, called a kind of funhouse mansion, or it's, you know, the funhouse mansion is something that is an image that we're has brought up that we've applied to this this house um, may also, you know, be haunted in a in a in a sense. It seems to be what we're we're getting here, which I think is really great and something that we need to need to make sure that we're keeping in mind as we go. There's something else here too, though, right about the business with the rage, the being angry about the presence, the mysterious presence of this Persian room. This couples up with the photograph of Weir on his 50th birthday, where he's getting a gift on behalf of the employees at his company. He doesn't remember what the gift was, but we know that Weir is somebody who remembers what gifts he gets because of the pocket knife and the books, right? He's told us about lots of gifts that he remembers specifically when he got them, whom he got them from, and also other moments in his life when those gifts have mattered to him. Here, doesn't remember what this gift is. So what we're seeing is that, yeah, as you say, this is someone, Weir is someone who does not really maybe care all that much about or think all that much about, have high regard for people he's giving money to, to perform tasks for him. And uh, that's the same thing we just saw from Stuart Blaine. It's the way he's treating the bank manager. We're going to see it even get worse here as we go. And so perhaps we have to wonder, right, especially given that he's made this foyer of Blaine's mansion, we have to wonder why this third suitor of Olivia's seems to have had such an impact on Weir's development as he gets into adulthood. There's also some description of in, in Blaine's house as well that I'll just point out really briefly here, though I, I won't cite the passage that gives us a sense of emptiness or something along those lines. Uh, you know, Blaine's sense of his wealth is kind of being his personality. There's a sense of emptiness around that. And so it's, it's language that allows us to draw on the imagery of the kingdom of air that we saw earlier in the fairy tale as well, though we're not going to be kind of digging deep into all of that. And, and there's a lot of Blaine to actually dig quite deeply into uh, in our discussion episode that will be moving through fairly quickly in in this recap episode. The last thing I want to say here is that this crippled leg is present here. That's a recurring motif in Wolf's fiction. Glenn, you said this is because of his stroke, but I wonder if he had another injury to his leg prior to the stroke. And that's something I want to see if it comes out in the text. Yeah, I think he has at this point tied to that, connected it to the stroke. But of course, you know... <laughs> You can't ever trust a narrator in a wolf book, right? So yeah, we'll have to keep an eye out for some like other evidence that we might need to bring to bear on this question. But uh, yeah, let's get back to, to Blaine's mansion here. Uh, it's, it's dinner time. Uh, well, actually, it's not dinner time, right? Dinner's not going to be for an hour yet. And the prospect of an hour of boring adult parlor talk is just horrifying to young Weir. I think we've all been in a situation like this. But Blaine suggests that Weir might have more fun hanging out with Doherty, who is the gardener and hostler. And in particular, Doherty is caring for a family of Dalmatians. Uh, Queenie has just given birth to a litter of puppies. We're going to spend a little more time with Doherty later. But for now, we should note that he is the grandson of Kate, who told the story about the Banshee back in Chapter 1. But now it actually is time for dinner, and it is now also time for us to learn a little about Blaine and also some more about Olivia as well. The food is weird to weird. You know, fancy adult food very frequently is to children. And the conversation is about how old the chandelier is. But the, the talk about the chandelier actually prompts 
Weir to get in the conversation. And he comments on how long Blaine's family has been in Cashinsville. And in turn, Blaine talks about that a little bit himself. And first he says, there is properly no history, only biography. And we're going to let that slide for now. I'm not going to get derailed <laughs> at this point, but this is a gauntlet that we will definitely pick up in the discussion <laughs> episode, but I'm going to just going to let it go for right now. And uh, what really matters here, right, is that, of course, Weir's family has also been here for a long time as well, though the Blaines were here earlier. And in fact, when Weir's great-grandfather came here, he bought the land for his mill from Blaine's ancestor. The terms of the deal were a barrel of whiskey three rifles, $20, and the promise to grind for him for free for three years, which is something that's actually quite a big deal, that free grinding there. And Blaine describes his ancestor as a hard bargainer and a good businessman and laments that he himself doesn't really have that sensibility. And the implication, right, is that it's because he's inherited his wealth and so has more interest in the luxuries that wealth provides than he does in actually acquiring the wealth that provides them. And he says that in college, he was very interested in Emerson, even laments that he can't be an English professor himself because he has the responsibility of overseeing the bank. But at the same time, he doesn't really know anything about how the bank works. And he jokes that in a better ordered world, he would be able to sign the bank over to someone else and just be done with it. But here in the real world, if he actually tried to do that, he would be put away. I am skeptical about the sincerity of these comments, right? All of this kind of feels like an act to me. We're going to get some more on this later. But yeah, I just don't, I don't think we're seeing the real Stuart Blaine here. No, Blaine, Blaine is certainly playing a type of game here. He's playing this role of the man who has nobly chosen his responsibilities rather than caved into whimsy and desire. Uh, it's, you know, the exact plot of It's a Wonderful Life to Minus the Resentment, <laughs> <laughs> the suicide attempts. Uh, but, you know, when we talked about George Sand and, and Lou Wallace, it was Blaine who was the Lou Wallace fan. And I think, you know, Blaine's being a near teetotaler, but he plays this game of being more of a drinker than he is or having had a wild past. All this is really an attempt to impress Olivia, to make him seem looser or more liberal in kind of a generic sense than he actually is. You know, it occurs to me now that it could entirely be the case that Blaine has uh, rice pie over to show up exactly when he did in order to show Olivia that, you know, Blaine does business rather than you just sit around and be wealthy all day, which is what Weir thinks Blaine does. And in fact, having the bank manager come over might also be a way to subvert the kind of potential scandal that could come about by having this single woman over for dinner. So, you know, he's trying to prove that everything is above board, but he's also playing this game of like, I'm going to prove to Olivia that I'm a good boss by having my coworker show up after hours and then have him for dinner that we're all on the same team. He's just like, he he's creating an image of himself that he thinks Olivia perhaps can uh, adapt to or be a part of, even though, you know, as soon as they get married, he's going to cut all of Olivia's hobbies out of their relationship and probably get all the booze out of the house. And just it would be a bad, bad match. Yes, yeah, so certainly at this point, it is very clear to us already that uh, Olivia would not be happy at all being married to Stuart Blaine. She might be happy being married to Professor Peacock or James McAfee, but definitely not Stuart Blaine. And, you know, maybe we should talk a little bit right now about Olivia's 
dating life, and then we can circle that back around to what Blaine is up to here. I mean, one thing we've not really called a whole lot of attention to is that, yeah, Olivia is dating these three men at the same time, which is something that I think is pretty alien to our experience. But that is something that certainly was totally normal at this time. It was normal for our parents as well to be dating multiple people at the same time. And why that change happened, I don't really know. I think it happened in the 1980s and might have something to do with shopping malls or, I don't know, the fear of Soviet invasion. I'm not really sure. There's probably a a good scholarly monograph to be written about the history of dating in America, actually. But they all know we about each other, right? That's the thing that I really want to point out here is that Professor Peacock knows about Stuart Blaine. He's the only one who really says anything that indicates to us that these three men know that Olivia is dating other men because part of what was normal about this also was that just to make conversation when you're on a date, you would talk about the other date you went on, you know, a couple of days ago with someone else, but like, this is what we did. So Blaine clearly knows about Professor Peacock and James McAfee. And so what he knows is that Olivia maybe is interested in marrying someone who's rich. So, Hey, check it out. I'm, I'm, I'm rich too. And in fact, I'm more rich than McAfee. So if that's what you're interested in, I'm the better bet for that. I'm better than that. But hey, also, if you're interested maybe in marrying a professor of some sort, I got to tell you, I could have been an English professor if I wanted to be. And so really, you can get the best of both worlds with me. And also, I take my responsibilities very seriously. That's a great point about the English professor. I did not make that connection about uh, his trying to outcompete Professor Peacock in kind of this gamesmanship of like, well, I could have been a contender sort of conversation about (laughs) Emerson. You know, I I think with regard to dating, you know, one of the things that really changed was certainly sexual mores, uh, you know, birth control, all of that sort of stuff. Um, I think the expectation for, you know, our parents' generation or grandparents' generation was that, you know, nobody's fooling around or having sex with, with multiple people because there was real danger to that, that you'd be forced to marry the one who got you pregnant. So you're not going to roll those dice. And so there's a a different sense of propriety around this. There's a different set of expectations around male and female behavior. Of course, we all know that that wasn't strictly speaking the case, but it was enough of the time, I think. And that, um, yeah, this was a time where the sexual mores were just very different around dating. And, and, And so you know, when it becomes normal, I think, for sex to be connected to dating in an open way, that this whole series of mores, they really shifted uh, because there's still kind of the the cultural acceptance that sex is something you do in a committed relationship and marriage and, and things like that, even in our time. So I think that that has something to do with it, that, you know, Olivia doesn't have men come over. And if she does, it's during the day, nobody's staying the night. Professor Peacock gets a hotel room. This dinner at Blaine's house is kind of a, a scandal in some sense, but rice pie is there and or recipe and uh <laughs> and um that in fact we're being there at this summer is actually a really good screen for olivia in all of this kind of romantic world that she's engaged with yeah i think that's a really interesting hypothesis there that probably is is right about where this change happened in you know the the, the history of dating in america but uh you know now i say go do the research and write the book for me except i know you don't have time for that and if you had I that have time more, we just do more podcasts yeah so. i have more to talk about with this book so i don't even have the time as you said but I, I also want to point out that that was a really great catch you made about kate uh that was hannah's housekeeper uh when she was a child 
I, I didn't quite make that connection. I'm really glad you brought that up. But we'll see in our next episode that Kate has another story to tell. And as Doherty mentions here, Kate likes to give people something to talk about. And stories are a great way to get people talking and keep them talking about you. I mean, there's this whole thing about this rumor about Kate and dog poop that's just hilarious <laughs> and strange. Um, but I, I want to hone in on Doherty's relationships with dogs. It shows us, number one, that he's also breeding dogs uh, for show, perhaps more than for sale. And he says that it's as good as drowning these Dalmatians to brush their hair the wrong way, because then the spots are in the wrong place. These words here, where the value of these dogs, the explicit value, uh, their extrinsic value, is in their being show-ready, is really in contrast with how little we're holds the dog, the little new puppies against his heart, not his chest, his heart. That's the words in the text. And Wolf, again, is playing this very complex game of show and tell tell here in this novel. We've pointed out in a few places, but it, it really jumped out to me here how we're told one thing about what the objective reality is, but then shown something that really undermines it. And perhaps this is saying this section that the value of an object is entirely subjective. And what something is for or made for may not really be where it finds its ultimate value. It may not be where its value lies. I hadn't thought too much about the dogs. We are, as you say, going to get more about dogs. That'll be in the, the next episode, though. But yeah, I wonder, I wonder why... Stuart Blaine is actually raising these dogs to begin with. We know that's something Olivia is doing. She, she's breeding Pekingese dogs, and here Stuart Blaine is breeding Dalmatians, apparently, for show. I wonder if, again, this is actually something that he's doing. It's like a new thing that he's doing to try to woo Olivia, or if maybe this is a genuine interest of his, and the, the dogs might actually be how they met. That's something I do actually want to speculate about in the discussion episode. But yeah, I hadn't made much of of the you know this business with the, the spots. But, uh, but yeah, there's definitely something there. Yeah, it's just a, another maybe perhaps motif of Weir's sense of value. Uh, that is another thing we're going to have to track through this novel now. It's the third time I think it's come up in, in this in this chapter. Yeah, absolutely. And we don't get any indication from Weir as an adult that, uh, I mean, I think it's pretty clear there are no dogs in the house, you know, as he's writing this memoir, but no indication that he ever kept any pets, you know, at any other point as an adult either. That's not something I had been keeping an eye on, but I think something we should from here on out. Well, we are at the end of this section, or we're coming to the end, I should say. We're going to end this episode with one casual detail that we get about Olivia. In talking about Blaine's interest, we also learn that Olivia has been to college. And in fact, she went to Adelphi in New York. And Adelphi became a women's college only in 1912. So there we have yet again another date that we can use to establish, you know, some temporal <laughs> parameters on this story. Uh, I just can't, I can't refrain. But it, it also does, I think, suggest that when we saw Olivia at Weir's fifth birthday party, right, the party where Bobby Black was injured, that at that party, Olivia must have been home from college for the summer. And I, I think it's also worth noting that this reinforces our understanding of the wealth and standing of the Weir family, right? This idea that they send their children to East Coast colleges. And at this point, I'm, I'm just really interested in Olivia's life. I mean, 
you know, because we've gotten this information here, which we get so casually, but like this detail that she you know, went to New York and went to college, this makes her even more fascinating to me than she already was. We also know then, too, that, that Weir's parents are very young. They're in their 20s, uh, which, you know, is not so young, but that she had Weir when she was maybe 21. Weir's mother had Weir when she was maybe 21 or something along those lines. Uh, and so it gives us a bit of an age gap, maybe... Weir's father is five years older, four or five years older than Olivia. I don't know. It's just something to keep in mind if we ever get around to doing a family tree of these people. (laughs) Uh, But what really strikes me here is that the family's local stature, the Weir's local stature might be what drives Blaine's interest in Olivia. It, it, It might have something to do with Olivia's family essentially being a founding family of Cashinsville and that Blaine's wealth and Olivia's potential wealth and pedigree. I mean, I'm not sure what access she has to her family's wealth. Certainly she has access to the pedigree. You know, as we said, Rice Pie in this section said that Olivia is a good depositor in the bank, that this is the thing that makes Olivia a good match in Blaine's eyes rather than their temperament as people and their ability to get along. You know, Blaine seems to put a lot of stock in local history, in local lore, and the wealth of families and things like that. So it's another moment where we see that perhaps Blaine and Olivia's interests uh, and desires really don't match on on any level. Yeah, that's a really great point. And I guess we should say too that although, right, it is clear to us that the Weir's have money. They are a wealthy family. It's not at all clear what is the nature of that wealth at this point. Uh, we know they own some land and that they have at least one tenant farmer, and that that definitely generates some income. But the mill that's mentioned here is past tense, right? They don't own this mill anymore. I mean, I don't think people are using mills in that quite in that way in the 1920s anyway, but that's not what it is anymore. But what is the nature of their wealth? What is it that they own that is generating wealth? It's possible they don't actually own anything in the local area, like you know the department store or the bank, that they might actually have a lot of liquid wealth in the form of, of stock shares or something like that, right? Uh, that might be the case, but we just don't know. Uh, and that seems to be something that's just clearly obfuscated like intentionally by Wolf as he's writing this book, right? That someone else writing a book like this would have let us know this by now, would have given us this this family history information in a more direct way so that we would know. Wolf does not want us to know at this point. And that, of course, you know, that's a hook for me. Yeah, it's it's kind of crazy because a typical memoir, you might see like, you know, I was born in this town from my family who had deep roots in the town and had initially become wealthy, went through these three generations of hard times. And then my great grandfather invented the toilet plunger and opened up (laughs) the plunger factory. And so like, uh, we never had to worry about money, you know, like that, that sort of thing is what what you get, but uh, not here. And we're, seems to think about his wealth as entirely coming from himself on some level, though he recognizes that his family had uh, comfortable living standards in in the time when he was a child. It just might not even compare to the wealth that he has been able to accumulate and accrue over his adulthood. But we're speculating a lot about stuff we don't know, which means it's time to end this episode. So that's going to do it for this episode. Once again, I'm Brandon Buddha. 
And I'm Glenn McDorman. Please drop by the forum at claytemplemedia.com or join us on the Clay Temple Media subreddit to talk about this section of the book with us. And if you want to come speculate about whether or not plungers are the uh, the source of the Weir family wealth, we would love to do that with you. My money's on that uh, someone in Weir's family either invented dice or silent Velcro. That's uh, those are going to be my guesses there. And uh, while you are on the internet, please also subscribe to our Star Trek podcast called Lower Decks. Next time, we're going to be back to talk about pages 111 to 121 in the Orb 2012 edition. And until then, we greet you and say farewell. 